So this morning, continue our Advent series. Advent, we talked about last week, means arrival or coming. So the Advent idea of Advent is for hundreds and hundreds of years, the church has been celebrating a season called Advent. And this, this happens the four weeks before Christmas. And it's to remember the first coming, the arrival of the Messiah, the Advent of the Messiah. And then now, as those that are, are living after Jesus has come the first time, we are now awaiting the second advent or the second arrival when Jesus comes to reclaim his kingdom and kick out sin and death forever. That's the second advent. So now, if you will, we are in the space between the first advent and the second advent. We live in that space in what some theologians call the already but not yet. We already have Christ, but not yet does he completely reign in my hearts or in the world. We're stuck on the, the space between the arrivals. And so here we are in Advent, and what part of Advent, it, Advent is, is waiting. We remember that for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, the children of Israel waited on the Advent the coming of the Messiah. And now, as believers, we are waiting. Parents, if you got our um, Advent guide, which there's still some out in the atrium, and you can get them on the way out. One of the activities, kids, I hope your parents did with you this week, is we had a, a devotion on Advent, and it was about waiting. And one of the activities was, as parents, we're supposed to tell our kids that we have an activity for us to do as a family in the next week, but we have to wait. And that reminder every time we think about it, I wonder what the activity is going to be to remind us that we are waiting for the Messiah. That's one of the resources of that Advent Guide. Parents, families, um, college students, I encourage you to get that. There's, there's um, devotions to walk you through this Advent season. But here we are living now in the space between the Advents. And we join the prayer of Jesus when he says, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this, this tension that we live in now is the already but not yet, that space between where we pray that God's will would be done because Jesus does not, Jesus reigns on our earth, but his kingdom does not reign completely. There's still sin, there's still death, there's still wickedness. And as we look at week two in Advent, week two focuses on the idea of peace. Now, Brad talked about the idea of peace a few weeks ago. When we think of peace, we think free from conflict, right? Or free from hate or free from war. That the idea of peace in the Bible is the word shalom. Shalom, and here's what it means. Universal flourishing. So peace does not just mean there's no conflict. It actually means that there's flourishing all the way around. So with the advent came peace with God. That you and I can flourish because God has made peace with that. That's what we call vertical peace. And then there's also a horizontal peace. Or that is this reconciliation of because I have peace with God, now in Christ we can have peace with one another. And the advent season is a reminder that we, as people, should pray and pursue peace. That we should pursue universal flourishing for all people. Knowing that ultimate peace will not come until Christ comes again. But we keep working for peace. And one of the readings that the church has done for hundreds and hundreds of years, there's a phrase uh, that they, they read a lot on the week of peace. And the, the English is old, but I, I hope you can get this. I think it's on the screen. Here's what they say. O come, desire of nations, bind in one the hearts of all mankind. Sorry, it's not on the screen. Desire, o come, desire of nation, bind in one, that's peace, the hearts of all mankind. Bid thou our sad divisions cease, or let our sad divisions cease, and be thyself the Prince of Peace. The prayer of peace in Advent is that divisions and polarizations and disunity cease. Now as we've looked at this series on Advent, each week we're going to look at the theme of the week 
Um, last week was on uh, hope. This week is on peace. And what we're going to do in this series, we're going to look at area in our society where peace or hope or whatever week we're on, where that is lacking. As we prayed about it this week, here's the area that came to our minds. Racial tension. We live in a time when racial tension continues to climb. And if we were praying the prayer of these saints from before, we would say, God, bind in one the hearts of men. Let our sad divisions cease. So today as we look at the idea of peace, we're going to look through the lens of racial reconciliation and realizing that, that we could talk all kinds of, uh, of issues with racial reconciliation, all types of races. This morning, I am going to focus in on the tension with black and white in our country. That's not to minimize other issues of, of racism or other issues of ethnic um, troubles, but I am going to focus in on that. Here's what we believe the church must enter the conversation of racial reconciliation. We must. There's landmines all over this conversation, and I will probably step on some this morning. But the church must enter into this conversation of racial reconciliation. We must enter in with grace and truth, with humility and love. And as I speak about this today, I want to caution us from the extremes. On one side, extreme anger from any side. Extreme indifference. The extreme of white guilt. It's not my goal. But I do want us to lean into the tension, all of us with open hearts saying, what could the, the gospel, what could the word of God speak into our day with the, in the area of racial tensions? And we'll look at this through the lens of the gospel narrative. As we teach the gospel narrative, here's where we always start. We did it in our, in our music this morning. We start with the glory of God. Here's what Genesis chapter 1 says about people, about humans. Then God said, let us make man. In our own image, this is verse 26 and 27. Let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. So somehow, in some unique way, humans are created after the image of God. Somehow we resemble God. We create, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This idea that humans are created in the image of God, theologians call this the omago Dei. That is that humans, men and women, are unique for all of creation that we have the stamp of the image of God in our lives. No other creature that was created or thing that was created was created in God's image. God creates everything and says it's good. He creates humans and says it is very good because we were created in the image of God. So as believers, here's what we believe, that humans are the pinnacle of creation, that we stand alone as image bearers of God. So your dog Fluffy, although he is sweet and you love him, he is not created in the image of God. And therefore, your dog Fluffy is less valuable than any human on this planet. Now, your cat is even more less valuable. <laughs> but the Imago Dei states that humans, that men and women, are created in the image of God. Despite race, despite skin color, despite ethnicity, we as humans are created in the image of God. We are created for shalom. We're created for peace. And in God's glory, when he created Adam and Eve and created humans, there was peace. There was universal flourishing. There were no divisions on race. There were no there was no hate. There was no killing. It was peace, universal, universal flourishing because it represented or took the likeness of God's image. We talked about last week the verse where it says, talking about Adam and Eve, and they were naked and they knew no shame. 
So God's created order is one with humans as the pinnacle of creation, as image bearers of God, with no shame and peace ruling and reigning. So we start with the order of the glory of God, and as we understand this idea of race and racial tension, we must understand that we start with God, and we understand that God created us equal, image bearers, children of God created for peace, universal shalom. But here's what we also know, that sin came into the world, and sin is systemic. Here's what Romans 3.23 says for, about humans, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. So we're created in God's image as his image bearers. But Adam and Eve, it started with them. Here's what they said to God. Uh, we know that you have put us underneath you to follow you and to find our satisfaction in you. But God, actually, we want to do our own thing. We want to pursue us being God. And they sinned. And that sin is now transferred to every single person on this earth. And sin is systemic. And so Romans 3 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us, though created as image bearers, though created to find peace in God, have sinned. And that sin has wrecked things. And we need not look any further than the idea of race to prove that all of us are sinners. Since the history of the world, humans have been killing and enslaving other humans due to race or ethnicity. We look at our recent history. In America, 250 years of slavery. That's an Imago Day issue. In 1915, World War I, the Armenian genocide by the Ottoman Empire. It's Turkey. Research that one. The Japanese slaughter of 6 million Chinese in the 1930s. The Holocaust in Germany in the 1940s. Rwanda in the mid-90s. The Congo in the mid-90s. Syria, 2011 to present. Since, and I can keep going. Since the foundation of the world, as sin enters into the world, it goes systemic. And sin is toxic. And we look need to look no other farther than race to see its effects. And none of us are above it. We know that sin is pride. Sin's a condition of the heart that does not submit to God. That's what it is. It's pride. It started with the first sin. No, we will not submit to you, God. We will eat of that tree because we want to be like you. And it comes to us, and sin is pride. And so here's what sin says. It's consumed with the light of self over God. So whatever sin you're talking about, the, the pride of it is, let me put myself on the place of worship. What I want is over what God wants. It's pride. That's what sin is. So pride is idolatry. Sin is idolatry. It puts us over God. Racial tensions are immersed in pride. Whether it's white supremacy, whether it's black power, racial tensions are immersed with pride because they put self up above God. Even the pride of silence or indifference. Some, many of you today, and I'll talk about this, you're not going to be like on the white supremacy side, you're not going to be on the black power side, but I wonder if some of us might find ourselves in the indifference side. It's pride, it's sin, here's why. Because when I withdraw, when I'm indifference, I'm consumed with approval of others or my comfort, and that becomes my idol. So none of us are exempt when it comes to these issues. If we look at specifically in America where sin has been toxic, specifically to our black brothers and sisters, 250 years of slavery, 90 years of Jim Crow laws, 60 years of separate, separate but equal. Currently black men are being killed and incarcerated at an astonishing rate. 
where pride reigns, there's no hope for reconciliation. See, pride doesn't listen. Pride doesn't learn. Pride does not seek empathy. Pride does not seek reconciliation. Pride seeks contempt. Pride says, I'm right, you're wrong. I'm here, you're there. I'm, up, I'm against you. Pride, where pride reigns, there's no hope for reconciliation. So I'm working hard on this, as you can imagine, trying to research. And part of my research, I've, I've spent many hours in conversation um, with, with some of my friends that are black over the past couple of weeks, in person, over the phone. And throughout this sermon, I'll share some of the things that, uh, that they've taught me as I've sought just to listen and to learn and to hear. Here's one thing I know, and, I, and I'm going to talk to, we are a predominantly white congregation, although we desire to change that. I'm going to talk to us as a predominantly white congregation this morning. Here's what we must know. Our black brothers and sisters who are created in the image of God are hurting. They are hurting. There's a history of brutality against black people in our country. And that history has not gone away. There's outrage and frustration from our black brothers and sisters in Christ. They're tired of people making assumptions about them and grouping them together just because of a skin color. And, and I think many of us, um, not knowing better, would say things like this, well, race, racism doesn't exist. I mean, we got, year, we got rid of that years ago. And I've tried to learn. I've tried to ask questions. And as we look at the idea of racism, there's, there's kind of two ways. You can look at it through systemic racism or through individual. Just some, some truths on the idea of systemic racism. Um, the, right now, the rate of incarceration is astonishing when you look at black men versus white men. The, war, the rate of incarceration, people in prison, has grown five times in the last 40 years. Five times. Consisting mostly of black men. 60 to, and I want you to hear this, parents, listen, 60 to 70% of black children are raised in single family homes. 60 to 70% of black children are raised in single family homes. One in three black men will be in prison sometime during their life. That's compared to one in 17 white men. Now, am I saying it's all the fault of a system? No, I'm not. But I am saying that there is a system that's helping support some of that. One of the girls I talked to was in our ministry a few years ago, um, came from North St. Louis, a really rough area, and um, worked very hard, came to Missouri State on a scholarship, graduated, is now a school teacher. And I asked her about the idea of systemic racism. I said, but I, I said, uh, you've achieved a lot. What, what would you say to, to maybe someone, maybe a white person that say, yeah, there, there may be some systemic racism, but if someone wants to pull themselves up by the bootstraps, they can make it and they can become some. She said, you know what, that's true, but here's what she says. I achieved a lot. I graduated from high school, first in her family to do so. Graduated from college, first to ever go to college. Here's what she said. I could not have done that without the help of white people in my life. I couldn't have. As hard as I worked, and as much as I did, I couldn't have done that without the help of some specific people in my life that helped me accomplish those goals. So as we look at our, as we look at our nation, there is some systemic racism. There is some systemic injustice towards black people, whether we like it or not. Now we can, and here's one thing I found in my research, like, uh, just like many of you don't agree on the same things, you talk to 10 Black people, they're going to disagree on kind of levels of systemic racism. There's are. There's different opinions. There's different viewpoints. Let's talk about, let's talk about individual racism. I talked to many of my, my black friends 
and said, where have you experienced this? Every single one of them called me inward. Many of them, um, well, two of them would say, when I take tests in class, it's obvious the teacher was watching me. One of our, uh, one of my, our young men said he was walking down the street this past year, and, and, uh, and you, can, uh, you can kind of picture the, the truck, big dually, or, you know, big jacked up tires, Confederate flag, yells, get out of the way, boy. One of our, our uh, black girls um, was walking out of Walmart late at night. She said she turned around and thought she kind of heard something behind her, so she turned around just to look, and this white lady says, no, no, I'm not following you. It's like, okay, I didn't think you were. Many of them, um, when they get pulled over, there's a sense of fear and angst. Many of them attest to seeing instant nervousness when they make eye contact with people. Of, of the idea like, oh no, they're going to hurt us. <laughs> One of our young men told me he's experienced, he grew up in, in Oklahoma, Tulsa says, I've experienced more racism in Springfield than I have my whole life. And some of us say, oh, yeah, I know that exists some, but it's not a big deal. Parents, think about this. Think about when your children get slighted, the rage that comes up. And that's what many of our black People and their parents are feeling. Um, talking to some of our, our, our young black men, and here's, here's some things they said. They've had conver- they have conversations with their parents that most of us have never had with our children. So here's what young man said that his dad talked to him as he started to get into his teenage years. He said to him, quote, Act like you have sense. Use your educated voice. Because you're black, you have to be conscious of certain things. You have to be better. Quote, don't wear a hood after dark. Another black man told me his parents worry about him driving. They say things like, keep your license, keep your registration, keep it always handy. Avoid moving fast, talk calmly, be respectful. Always have a a respectful tone in your voice. And we would say, well, of course, we teach our kids that. But the difference is these black parents teach their kids with this extreme fear and worry. Now, here's what many of us will say this morning. I believe this. What? This is all great, Daniel, but I'm not a racist. Right? I'm not a racist. None of us have a, a, a white hood in our closet. Right? I'm not a racist. Here's what I want us to all wrestle with, though. Are there certain levels of ethnocentrism that are built into us? Ethnocentrism is a belief or concern that one's own ethnic group should be treated as superior privileged. Are there subtle, another, another group would say, unconscious bias? Do all of us not have maybe some unconscious bias towards someone of another race? Black, white, Hispanic, whatever. See, the truth that humans are sinners is the truth that every single one of us have a hint of ethnocentrism in us. We not need look past history to prove that. To deny the fact that I don't have some level of prejudice or some, or some level of ethnocentrism is to minimize the depth of sin in my life. So we understand in this conversation that God has created men equal. He's created men and women of every skin color in his own image. That sin is systemic. That has came into our society. That's came into our hearts. And it's affected everything within us. Especially the idea of race. And it brings pride and it brings contempt and hate and racism. But here's a foundational truth. And kids, I hope you're listening to this. We have a foundational truth here. That Jesus came to save sinners. And we need it. Romans 3, 23, here's what it says. After it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to receive His grace, or to receive grace by faith. 
So the foundational truth that Jesus came to save sinners. And here's what we know about the sin of racism and ethnic hatred. It deserves punishment. And on the cross, Jesus paid the punishment for racism to those who would believe. So if you're a believer, here's what, here's what you confess. At some level, I have ethnocentrism in my heart. I have some prejudice. I have some hints of racism in my heart. Maybe it's, who knows what race that's directed towards. But the foundational truth of the gospel is that Jesus came to save me from that sin. Here's what Romans 12 says, verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Here's what we know, that God's wrath and vengeance will pour out against racism. Now, if you're a believer in Christ, that was on Jesus on the cross. Jesus became a racist. And God poured out his wrath upon Jesus to pay for the sin of racism. If you're not a believer, if you never accepted Christ, the Bible teaches that God will pour out his wrath against racism and you will pay for that. And that's what hell is. So with this foundational truth that while we are sinners and sin has went systemic and it affects us, especially the idea of race, that kids, here we go, Jesus came to save sinners, even ones that struggle with racism. It's a scandal of grace. It's a scandalous nature of the cross. And here's what we believe the gospel. Not only did he come to pay the price for our sin, which was death, but he also came to create a new identity in us, a new heart in us. An identity where we're not puffed up with pride. We're not puffed up with superiority. And where no one is paralyzed with fear. Or has feelings of inferiority. Jesus came not just to save us from our sin, but to give us new heart and heal us from our sin. The effects of the gospel would be transforming to a country plagued with racism. Transforming. Because it's about a heart change. The gospel would begin to replace contempt with love. It would replace hate with compassion and anger with patience. Now, believers, let me talk to you. Here's what we, we talk about this a lot. We are not about behavior modification. The gospel is not about behavior modification. Jesus didn't just come to die for your sins and then fix your struggle with being racist. He came to give you a new heart and to change you from the inside out. We must be about heart transformation. Our hope for racism is not in system change, although that would help. Our hope is not in policy change, although that would help. Hope is not an education reform, although that would help. Our hope is in the gospel changing the hearts of sinners who are plagued with ethnocentrism. Our only hope is the gospel. Without it, we destroy each other. And here's what the Bible teaches about the gospel. It says the gospel is the power of God. This truth that Jesus came to save sinners, kids, hope you got that, is the power that will change hearts. Just in the past six months, here's, what I've, here's how I've seen the gospel change hearts. I've seen someone who was abusing alcohol multiple nights a week. Be cleansed by the power of the gospel and walk in newness. I've seen a marriage that was torn apart because of adultery and contempt I didn't know if they had hope. I've seen that marriage completely restored because of the power of the gospel. Seen a young man who struggled with pornography his whole life be healed because of the power of the gospel. Seen someone that's struggled with homosexuality walking through the process of being healed because of the gospel. Multiple of our students who are active in sexual immorality because of the power of the gospel are walking clean. As I've seen the gospel in the past six months, I can keep going, heal multiple people because the gospel is the power of God. Why would racism be any different?
Does our country have some big issues? Yes. Does it have some system issues, some systemic racism? Yes. But the answer and the hope is not just in policy changes, in the hearts of men and women that we would proclaim the gospel and see the gospel transforms heart and therefore transform actions. So we, the gospel narrative created in the image of God to mirror his holiness, we walked away and became sinners and that sin, sin ran systemic and all of us have sinned and fallen short of God, the glory of God. That's why Jesus came and God sent Jesus to save sinners and now, for those that respond, like, that have been saved, we always say this, the gospel demands a response, and the area of race is no different. The gospel working in our life demands a response. So go to Matthew chapter 5. Let's get into the response part. That was my introduction to my sermon. Matthew 5, 9, in my research, I came across this passage, and I'd never seen it in the light that I, that I think Jesus meant it. It's a simple verse. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So as we look at the idea of response, if you'll just keep that verse up there. If we look at the idea of response to the gospel, as we look through the lens of Advent, of peace, the way God would recall that would call people who have been changed by the gospel to respond to the gospel is that we are called to be peacemakers. Now, when I read this before, here's how I read this verse. Here's how I thought about this verse. Blessed are the peacekeepers. Meaning, I'm just not going to stir anything up. I just got to keep the, I got to do whatever I can to keep the peace. But he doesn't say peacekeepers. Blessed are the peacemakers. This is active. To make peace, that means I have to step into something. God made peace with us by sending Jesus. Making peace requires me to step into places that I may not want to step into. The role of the church, the role of Christians is not to be passive peacekeepers, try not to stir things up. The role of the church and of Christians are to be peacemakers, stepping into the tension. The people of God should be leading the charge towards racial reconciliation. Hear me, guys. It's a gospel issue. It's an Imago Dei issue, just like abortion is. The church gets very passionate, and we should be, about abortion. But it's just as much a Imago Dei issue as racism because both issues are belittling people who have been made in the image of God so Jesus says blessed are the peacemakers and we say okay Jesus what in the idea of racism what does that mean does that mean systemic change like the big picture the structural change does that mean peacemaking does it mean personal responsibility? Which one is it? Here's what I think Jesus would say. Yes. God places government in systems to restrain evil. To promote, promote good. To promote peace. Shalom. But then he also calls individual believers in their lives to step in and be peacemakers. And as I wrestle with this, here's what I ask myself in Springfield, Missouri, because that's where we lead, that's where I'm a pastor. In Springfield, Missouri, what keeps us as believers from being peacemakers in the area of racial reconciliation? I don't think for most of us it's what we would call extreme racism. I don't think that's what is keeping us from being peacemakers. Here's what I think it is apathy. Apathy is passionless living, passionless living. Here's what John Piper says, as in my research I found this quote. If apathy is the emptiness that comes from thinking of godliness as the avoidance of bad things instead of the aggressive pursuit of doing good things. Sorry, I shouldn't have the if in the front. Apathy is the emptiness that comes from thinking of godliness as avoiding bad things instead of the aggressive pursuit of doing good things. Blessed are the peacemakers. See, many of, many of us, as we were taught and as we learned of what Christianity looked like, we thought it was don't do the bad things. 
don't do the bad sins. And so one of those, the tactics is let's isolate ourselves from the world and its influence. Let's just kind of hide. That way we don't do bad things. But if we're hiding and stepping back and apathetic, how can we be peacemakers? 2 Timothy said this, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Hear the promise? Will be persecuted. But here's the deal. Apathetic people aren't persecuted. They hide. Peacemakers are persecuted. Apathetic peacekeepers aren't persecuted because they hide. Some of us would say with the idea of racism, well, that's, that's not my issue. It's not my problem. Here's what Micah 6.8 says, What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Blessed are the peacemakers. So how can we as believers start to step into racial reconciliation or racial injustice and be peacemakers? Well, last pastors will look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. I'll try to wrap this up quick, kind of. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Here's what Paul says. Talking to Gentile believers, those that are non-Jewish so Paul's going to look at a passage, uh, look at a gospel, at the gospel through the lens of racial reconciliation. Here's what he says. And guys, he's talking to us, Gentiles. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh were called, quote, the uncircumcision on the outside by what is called the circumcision, that's Jewish people, which is made of the flesh by hands. Remember, Gentiles, that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So he's talking to these, these, uh, these Gentile believers, which is us, and here's what he's saying. Remember, at one time you were separated. And he's speaking to the tension of the racial issue in their day, which is Gentile versus Jew. And the tension was real. They were divided based on religion, cultural issues, racial issues. The tension was real, and he's talking to Gentiles like, remember at once there was a divide here. You were separated. And I would argue the divide is even bigger then than what we experience today. There's these huge issues, but he keeps going. Verse 13, look what he says. What's going to break this hostility of race? Paul's going to deal with what's going to break our hostility with race. Here we go, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken, us, broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That dividing wall that separated Jews and Gentiles, he said the gospel broke that down. The dividing wall that separated you and God, the gospel broke that down. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, that's us, and peace to those who were near, that was the Jews. For through him we have both access to, to one spirit to the Father, Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together dwelling as a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's a long passage. What? What is the result of this gospel that comes, that breaks these walls? The result is peace. It says Jesus came and he pre preached peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near. And the, uh, the result of this peace with God is peace with each other. 
that they were brought near by the blood of Christ. May we never lose sight of that verse. The next time we want to say in regards to racial issues, they, may that phrase, brought near by the blood of Christ, come to our hearts. When we want to point fingers, may that phrase, brought near by the blood of Christ, come to our hearts. Because in the gospel, those who are way far apart can be brought together and brought near because we are all created in the image of God, brought into a family, the children of God. So the gospel restores, this peace restores our broken relationship with God, and the gospel of peace restores our broken relationship with each other. Let's get practical to wrap it up. What does this look like for us, Hill City Church, Springfield, Missouri, 2016? As a church, um, your pastors, your elders, are determined to pursue a racially diverse church. We live in Springfield, Missouri. We have a few strikes against us because we're not an extremely racially diverse city, although we are growing that way. We are committed to pursuing that, that our church would reflect the family of God made up of all nations. How do we do that? I mean, it sounds cute, right? How do we do it? A few things that I want us to think about as we wrap up. Number one, proximity. Proximity breaks down walls. Verse 14 of that passage, here's what he says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The result of Jesus coming to earth was breaking down walls. The result of the gospel for Jews and Gentiles was breaking down walls. How do we break down walls of race? Proximity. Proximity leads to empathy. Proximity might make us start to think of, think of black people not as a group of people, but as individuals. And when we hear something in the news that involves the black community, maybe we wouldn't say the word they, we would say the word John or Dion or Jason, or people that we know, proximity. Hill City Church, do you have proximity to someone of a different race, ethnic group than you? doesn't have to be black necessarily. Is there any proximity? Have you locked yourself away in your homes and your neighborhoods and your gated communities from those of a different race, ethnic group, skin color? Do you have proximity? Because hear me, without proximity will not come empathy. It will not. And as we, as white believers, are going to grow in our empathy to our black brothers and sisters, we must grow in our proximity. We must step in and get to know someone at a personal level that is different than us. Those of you, many of you know I'm the, I'm the chaplain. Brad and I are both chaplains for the football team. Uh, a couple years ago when, um, when I, Steck asked me to come and be the chaplain, let me be honest, for, up until that time I had one relationship, um, one friendship with a black person. Not because I didn't want them, because I didn't grow up in a town where there was any black people. When I came to college I had a group of white friends, I never knew any. Before that I had one relationship with a black person. Be honest, I was anxious, I was nervous about stepping in to that locker room for the first time, not because um, I, w I thought I was a racist or I had all kinds of prejudice. Here's what I thought. Um, I cannot relate to them. That was my thought. I can't relate to them. I can't understand them. We are too different. They're not going to accept me. You know what I learned with proximity? We're the same. Same dreams, same values, same desires. Now, those guys gave me a ton of grace because I was like the, the, you know, the, the middle-aged white dude in there trying to be cool. You know, and I'd, I'd go up and try to shake hands, and I would just be like, you know, this thing. And they're doing all this, like, you know, slapping. I was like, dude, I can't follow you. You just have to teach me. Walk me through this. I was meeting with one of the, one of the guys this week at the, at the student union at Missouri State. And we're sitting there talking, and another football guy walks through. And I'm like, hey, you know, like this. And, and my black friend's like, what's up? You know, and I'm like, dude, you got to teach me that. I just got, I'm not cool. 
But they gave me a ton of grace. But here's what proximity is teaching me. It's teaching me we have more in common than what we do different. And guys, a lot of these guys come from way different backgrounds than what I came from. Hill City Church, may you, may we pursue proximity and gain empathy. In my conversations with some of our, our black friends, here's, here's some questions I ask. I ask them some real honest questions, some hard questions. Here's a question I ask. How do you feel? You know, black person, 2016 in America, how do you feel? Here's some words they said. Worry, anger, I feel overwhelmed, I feel misunderstood. At times I feel powerless. When tragedy strikes, here's what one young man said. Quote, it could have been me, I walk with a hoodie on. One of our black girls um, is leading a group, a, a small group of some white people, and uh, one of those white girls came to her a few, month, a few weeks ago and says, man, like, I'm really hurting right now. I voted for Trump, and I put up on my Facebook while they voted for Trump, and I got called a bigot. And all these people are calling me like a bigot and a racist, and I, got, I just felt like I got put in a box. So this white girl said to this black girl, and here's, in, in a great heart, here's what the black girl said, said, Welcome to my world. You got put in a box because you voted for Trump. I've been put in a box for 24 years of my life because of my skin color. And here's what she said to the girl. You're going to be out of that box in a couple months. I'll be in it. White Christians, may we grow in empathy. May we pursue proximity and grow in empathy. I ask them the question, how can we serve you? Especially when, when tragedy hits in the black community. As white believers, how can we serve you? Here's some things they said. Acknowledge, acknowledge that there's been a history of violence against black people and it hasn't changed. Just acknowledge that. One girl said, when tragedy strikes, you have the opportunity to change the channel and forget about it. We live in that every day. Acknowledge that. Here's what Jesus will say, mourn with those who mourn. One of the biggest things that was asked of our black people when tragedy strikes is that we would simply mourn and grieve with them. That we would enter into the suffering of our black brothers and sisters in Christ, not with white guilt, but with understanding. That we would just mourn, that we would grieve. That we would acknowledge that I... Don't know what it's like to have my back torn apart by a whip. I don't know what it's like to be called boy by someone younger than me. I don't know what it's like to be raised with my dad in prison. I don't know what it's like to ask a girl out and to hear the phrase, my dad won't let me date people of your color. I don't know what it's like to be whipped by my dad for playing the street with water guns because he was afraid for my life. I was whipped by my dad a lot, but not because of that. I don't know what it's like. And our black brothers and sisters would just say, will you please just come and grieve with us? Just mourn with us. Hear me, white people, tragedy is not the time for teaching points. When tragedy hits, lament, cry, mourn, weep alongside Some of you may get mad at me for this. It's incredibly unhelpful when tragedy hits and the black community is crying Black Lives Matter for us as white people to follow back with All Lives Matter or Blue Lives Matter. It's incredibly unhelpful. Here's the deal. We don't do that in any other area. In September, whenever it is, when Breast Cancer Awareness Month is going on, and all the football teams wear pink and everyone's wearing pink, we don't, we don't cry out, hey, what about prostate cancer? Do we? No, we just, we mourn and we grieve and we celebrate. Let us not do that with this issue. Here's what someone, one of them said about the idea of Black Lives Matter and White Lives Matter and all that. Here's what he said, and you miss the point. You miss unconditional love. Blue lies have always mattered, and white lies have always mattered, and we believe they still matter. But black lies have not mattered, or lynching would not have happened. Here's what one young man said. It means everything to me when they, meaning white people, grieve instead of counter-argue. 
he says, and this was a quote, when someone dies, you don't walk up to that person and say, well, get over it. Everybody dies. Just get over it. No, you grieve. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Proximity leads to empathy. May we continue to pursue that. So where can we grow in this area? Some small steps for any of us. Maybe this week, maybe the next couple weeks, you try to go somewhere where you're not the minority. Just go somewhere and be there where you're not the minority. Evaluate your friend group. Does everyone in your friend group look like you? Parents, white or black, remember your influence in the next generation. Teach your children to seek proximity. Teach your children to be peacemakers. Model that. Here's a real tangible. Call this week, call up big brothers, big sisters. Say, hey, Hill City Church told me to come. You need mentors for young people. Black or white, be a mentor. May we start to take steps in peacemaking. Now, here's a big call. There may be someone out there that would say, I will take up the call to pursue racial reconciliation in our culture. That will be my issue. Like some of you have other issues. Some of you uh, pursue adoption and, and, and abortion and all these other issues, which is great, feeding homeless people. Maybe there's someone out there. It doesn't need to be all of us. Maybe there's someone that says, I will give my life to pursue the gospel issue of racial reconciliation in our city. I will make a difference there. I will make that my plea or my cause. As we close, the gospel is that Jesus came to save sinners, even the ones that get it wrong in the issue of race. In heaven, we will worship beside people that got it wrong in the issue of race. Some of us will worship beside people that were prejudiced against us in this life because the scandalous nature of grace is the gospel frees us from that. So let us be peacemakers. May we continue to fight for proximity. May we continue to pursue peace. To our black friends, be patient with us. Give us grace. But continue to speak truth to us with grace that we may listen and grow in our proximity and empathy. So as we take communion this morning, may we remember that Jesus made peace with us by denying himself, taking up the form of a servant, and dying a sacrificial death. And as we take communion, may we pursue peace with one another. Let's pray. Father, we need grace, every one of us, because we've all got it wrong and we'll continue to get it wrong at some level. So we claim the promise that Jesus made peace by his blood and that he offers peace to us. And now in response, God, may we offer peace to one another and we may, may we pursue peace and be peacemakers. We thank you for the meal that we're about to take that celebrates the fact that you have paid for the price of our sin and pride. May we live in response. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.